If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. On today's podcast, we have a discussion with the writer Stephen Johnson, whose new book, Enemy of All Mankind, explores the life of the notorious 17th century pirate, Captain Henry Every. In 1695, the mutineer-turned-pirate succeeded in a brutal heist that sparked a global manhunt and resulted in significant fallout for Britain's East India Company. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, caught up with Stephen recently to find out more. Your book considers the world stage in the late 17th century through one pirate story. Uh, And I wondered if we could start by uh, just simply introducing Henry Every and the sense of notoriety that he gained in this period. He's a very mysterious figure, um, really in some ways unique, I think, in in history of certainly of crime, um, but even in just broader his, historical sense in that um, we know almost nothing about him until 1693. And we know really nothing about him after 1696. But during those three years, he became the most notorious criminal in the world. Um, so he was very, <laughs> he had an intense global spotlight on him for a very short amount of time. Other than that, it's, he's kind of shrouded in mystery. Um, he, we know, uh, pretty confidently that he was born in, in Devon, um, which of course is where all the pirates come from. <laughs> and, uh, and he had some kind of maritime career, uh, probably was in the Royal Navy, um, seems to have been involved in the slave trade in some fashion, um, but he shows up on a uh, on a British voyage, a legitimate British voyage called the Spanish Shipping Expedition or Spanish Expedition Shipping um, that involved four ships that were going to the Caribbean to do some salvage and trading with the Spanish and so on. And uh, basically, they get tangled up in a uh, kind of bureaucratic snafu in a in a port in Spain. Uh, and just kind of sit there for months, not getting paid. And so Henry Every ends up leading this mutiny um, in in May of 1694. And basically, for the first and, as far as we know, only period of his life, decides to become a pirate um, and pulls off uh, one of the most notorious heists, really, in the history of crime. So I, I don't know how much you, you do want to say about the event that made him so notorious. Um, but I, I, I mean, perhaps you can set the scene. Yeah, yeah. I think, no, I, it's funny. I, it, it is kind of a mystery thriller in a way, this this book. So I, I for the first time practically in my life as a writer, I actually am worried about giving too much away. Um, but I think the crime, the crime is right there at the, at the center of it. It's actually the book begins with with the scene of the crime in a sense. Um, and there's a lot of mystery that comes later. So. What he decides to do, which is itself incredibly uh, bold, if you, if you think about it, is rather than just he's mutinied on this ship, he's got he's got an extraordinary ship. Um, it was called the Charles II, um, but they they rebranded it, rechristened it the Fancy, 
uh, which is a great name for a pirate ship. Um, and every decides rather than just sailing, you know, following the trade winds over to the Caribbean where there was plenty of piracy to do. Uh, he decides to embark on a much more ambitious and much more arduous journey all the way around the Horn of Africa, all the way up to the mouth of the Red Sea. Um, and the idea there was that uh, there was a reliable kind of flow of vessels coming from uh, Mecca um, and from trading in the Red Sea in places like Mocha um, and uh, returning to India. And India at this point, we have to remind ourselves, was was arguably, in terms of total uh, wealth, the wealthiest nation in the world. Um, this was right before, you know, Britain began to see its great kind of takeoff and in early industrialization and so on. So there's a vast amount of money uh, coming back uh, to India uh, attached to these ships that were also making these re religious pilgrim pilgrimages to, to Mecca. And so he arrives there about a year later. Um, after stopping over in Madagascar and a few other places. And it turns out there are like five other pirate ships waiting as well. There's some, By some estimate, 50% of the pirates on the planet had gathered at this exact spot. Um, and he ends up uh, getting this encounter with uh, a massive Indian treasure ship. Uh, the anglicized name of it was the Gunsway. But the, the translation of the actual Indian name of the ship is... Um, excessive treasure or exceeding treasure, which is a pretty obvious name to give your, your ship. You would think if you didn't want to be raided by pirates, you would call your ship not very much treasure on board here or <laughs> nothing to look at. Anyhow, in an in a extraordinary few minutes at sea, um, Avery's ship manages to overpower the Gunsway, even though the Gunsway has you know, on paper, a massive advantage in terms of men and, and cannon and so on. Um, two very unlike unlucky things happen for the Indian ship. Um, a cannon explodes on board their their deck, and Avery's one of his first shots um, with his cannons uh, basically smashes into the main mast and breaks it in two, effectively disabling the gunsway. Um, so Avery is able to board the ship. And, and effectively, two crimes happen. They steal uh, upwards of $100 million in, in treasure in today's currency, making it one of the largest heists in the history of crime. But then, uh, unusually for the, for the era, there are a large number of women on board this ship who were making this one religious pilgrimage, really, of their lives um, to Mecca. And the pirates discover there are all these women on board the ship, and they rape many of them. Uh, some of the women commit suicide uh, to avoid um, being attacked. And so word of this gets back to Aurangzeb, who's the Grand Mughal, the last of the Grand Mughals in India. And he, you know, hears not only that his money has been stolen, but members of his extended royal court have been, uh, you know, sexually assaulted. And... This, of course, is at a time when the East India Company, um, the world's first publicly traded multinational corporation, is making a, a vast fortune importing fabrics from uh, from India, cotton, calico, chintz. Um, and so Aurangzeb hears of this British pirate um, who's done this terrible deed, and he threatens to evict the East India Company from India for good. Um, which would have absolutely changed the course of history. Um, he throws them under house arrest, threatens to execute some of their uh, kind of executives, 
And uh, so it sets up this global crisis, all triggered by this one pirate and a you know, 150 men on a ship. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating tale. And, and one thing that really struck me is this Robin Hood rags to riches style myth before um, the so-called golden age of piracy, um, sitting very much alongside what was, uh, by most accounts, a, a very horrific and merciless attack. So what can you say about that that dynamic? Well, you know, the, the thing that wasn't initially apparent to me when I started research, even when I decided to write this book, but became you know increasingly important as I wrote it, is that... In a sense, there are kind of three models for making and sharing wealth <laughs> that are at the center of the story. You've got this new model of the publicly traded corporation in the East India Company. You've got this very old model of an autocrat in, in Aurangzeb and the Grand Mughal dynasty. Um, but then on the pirate ship, there is this very interesting economic system that had developed in the early days of piracy that Avery's gang um, exemplified as well, which is um, they they were effectively a, a little kind of a, a profit sharing collective. Um, so every pirate ship had uh, articles of agreement that were signed by the pirates. Um, they they it was a functioning democracy. You could vote out the captain if you wanted. There was actually a kind of divided governance system before <laughs> the American system was developed, because the quartermaster was also a leader but had a different set of powers, and he could be voted out as well. And then they had elaborate economic agreements that were probably the most egalitarian economic structure on the face of the earth at this point in time. So when they, if they were lucky enough to come into treasure, um, they established in advance the ratios that the treasure would be distributed. And many pirate ships, it, it was two to one. Like the captain would get two pieces of gold for every one that an ordinary uh, crew member would get. Um, you know, you think about the modern American corporation, the, the, the high-low wage ratio is like 500 to 1, right? So th these were very egalitarian systems. And in part because of that, the pirates developed a kind of mythology around them as kind of working-class heroes. And in part because they had these economically progressive systems, but also because at this moment in time, there was there were very few other avenues to ascend from poverty to relative wealth, right? There were no stories of young internet entrepreneurs out there who started with nothing and bootstrapped their way into a fortune, you know, in Silicon Valley. That didn't exist. So the, if most of the wealthy people in the world at that point in England were people who'd been born into wealth. And the pirates were this first generation, and they were celebrated by the kind of the media system of the day. Um, they were the first kind of class of people who could really come into life-changing money by some bold, daring, risky, um, and also, by the way, you know, barbaric and illegal <laughs> actions. And and that becomes crucial to the story in the end because the the popular support back home for for Avery ends up being significant in what ends up happening to some of his crew members. Right. Well, can we talk about that a, a bit more then? Because uh, what, one thing you write is that it was challenging to establish yourself as a pirate without the power of media amplification. So how did this story spread and, and how did it capture people? Well, <laughs> one of my favorite little kind of trivia bits for the book is, um, you know, this is the very beginning of what we would recognize as the modern media system. You know, magazines are just starting to be 
invented. There's kind of pamphleteers back in London. There's a kind of coffee house culture is developing in London. Um, and broadsheets, things that we might begin to recognize as the prototypes of, of what becomes newspapers and, and particularly tabloid newspapers. Um, but the, the primary way in which, uh, news of scandalous, uh, piratical crimes happening on the open seas was actually in in song um so there was a whole class of uh journalism in a sense is what it was um known as the the ballad mongers and the ballad mongers would have a a printed copy that they'd be selling of a set of verses about some new crime that had just happened so uh, you know a husband murders his wife so they put that crime to into into poetry and and often take a kind of popular folk melody and apply it to that folk melody and uh and then the ballad monger would you know sit there you know on the street corner in london and sing this song of the guy who murdered his wife and and people would come by and be like yeah sure i'll give you a penny for that broadside that sounds interesting i'd like to read that and take it home and but at the time you know, if you think about tabloid media that we have today, there were no celebrities, right? There was there was no reality TV star for people to gossip about. You know, you knew about the royalty and you knew about, you know, some political leaders and members of the clergy, but you didn't have stars to gossip about. And so criminals and particularly pirates were a key ingredient in feeding this new kind of news and, and, and new kind of um you know, ballad mongering sung news. And so the pirates were, were in this interesting kind of symbiotic relationship with, with this news. Uh, and in fact, in the case of every, the first news of it that, that makes it back to London is, um, a set of verses. Interestingly, like written in his voice as if he's composed them, um, containing, you know, actual factual information that, would have had to have been known by someone adjacent to the story, um, almost certainly not composed by Henry Avery himself. I don't think it's possible. So someone close to the story had penned this and then sent it back to London, and then it was being sold within a few weeks of the crime that he'd committed in in, in the mutiny, um, uh, the original stealing of the ship. Uh, that's what the what the Henry Avery verses were about. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it's hard to write a book with a character like that at the center of it and not somehow feel like he should be the hero, but he is so clearly, a you know, an awful person. He's a very mixed bag of things, but I think it's important that we know more about him in that way. We don't have to be sympathetic towards him to, to want to learn more about that life. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I wonder if we could talk uh, a bit about a particular aspect of the uh, every legend that um, has ha- that lived on um, the the woman who yeah. may or may not have been taken from from the ship. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating part of the story. So, the legend that developed in England afterwards um, that became almost you know central, a pivotal part of the story in in. The, the, the British version of this story um, is that on board this ship, the Gunsway, was the direct descendant, the granddaughter of the Grand Mughal himself, Aurangzeb. And while the other men are committing their atrocities, somehow Avery and this Indian princess meet and fall in love. And they're, in fact, married uh, by a, a Muslim cleric. So it's a kind of multi-faith, multicultural ceremony. And the legend goes that they then retire to some pirate utopia, sometimes called Libertalia, uh, potentially on Madagascar, and live happily ever after. That is almost certainly not factually true <laughs> on, on multiple levels. Um, it doesn't seem to be... In everything we know about Aurangzeb's descendants, it doesn't seem to be a granddaughter who would have fit in that timeline, who disappeared, all that stuff. However, there is, and we don't need to get into the details of this, it's in the book, but there is some very interesting, bizarre evidence that suggests there was a member of the royal family that left with the ship. Um, whether under her own will uh, or whether as some kind of captive, um, we don't know. Uh but the existence of both of the kind of the the sexual attacks, but also this this missing member of the royal family um, has always been whichever side, whether you tell the kind of Indian side of it and the Grand Mughal side of it as, you know, these these terrible atrocities or the British side of it, that there is this wonderful multiracial uh, wedding. Um, the princess is central to the story, has always been central to the story. And I I wrote like a whole draft of the book and, of course, talked about it. But all of a sudden I realized I know so much about all of these men in the story, uh, you know, I mean, except for some of Avery's life, of course. But, you know, the, the whole episode is documented. There's a trial that happens. It's meticulously documented. The crimes are documented, all this kind of stuff. But this woman who's at the center of the story is just a complete blank spot on the map. And... So in kind of the second pass through writing the book, I, I put a chapter right at the at the very center of the book called The Princess, where I just tried to, in whatever limited way I could, to reconstruct what her life would have been like and to imagine what it would have been like. She would have lived her entire life in a harem, um, in, you know, in, uh, in India, her, this trip 
to Mecca would have probably been the only time she'd left the grounds potentially of the harem in her whole life. And then she ends up on this pirate ship. And, you know, one speculation that I have is just, is it possible that she felt the force of that oppression under Aurangzeb enough that a pirate ship seemed like a better alternative? Is that even conceivable? Probably not, but perhaps. Um, But anyway, I tried to kind of fill in and speculate a little bit on what possibly could have happened to her because she is so so central to the to the ultimate events of the of the story yeah it's it's a really interesting um re- repositioning on that but st- stepping away from from the legend perhaps or perhaps some of the unknowns um the impact that this uh, event had for the east india company was certainly more tangible um what can you say about its effect on on that position well it, effectively what happened was the the um, once the word of the crime had happened and the, and the um, employees in, in Surat and in Mumbai and Bombay um, had been put under house arrest, they start, two of them, this guy John Geyer and this guy Samuel Annelsley, start this furious campaign of letter writing back to London um, saying, we are literally going to be kicked out of this country for good. And by the way, you know, you've looked at our <laughs> accounts like we will go out of business if if we lose our trade with India. And so both the company and the crown needs to find this guy. And but more importantly, to take a firm national stand against piracy, because up until that point, you know, many of your listeners probably know there was a very blurred line. You had people like Francis Drake, who, you know, was for all intents and purposes, a pirate. Um, But because he was technically considered a privateer and had some authorization to do what he did. He managed to live a legitimate life and, you know, buy a big estate and get knighted and all the things that he was able to enjoy. And so with the message that comes back slowly, of course, because there's, you know, the, just the trans, you know, the, uh, just the time it took for information to get from Surat and Bombay to London was, you know, it would take weeks, take a month in, in some cases. Um, but slowly the message gets back to England that that Avery has to be found and put to justice and piracy has to be renounced for once and for all. And that's the part of the big story here in terms of the long term historical points is that Avery finally forces Britain, which had this reputation as a nation of pirates, um, to to finally kind of take a stand and say, look, we, we can either choose to, you know, tolerate piracy among our citizens, or we can choose to embrace this new global system of trade that is developing and that seems to be making some of our people a lot of money. You know, which, which future do we want to bet on? And and it's Avery in a sense. They probably would have come to this anyway, but it's Avery and this case that forces uh, the country to finally, you know, renounce piracy um, in an official way. So that's an important part of it. The other important part of it is a kind of counterfactual side, which is for complicated reasons that, you know, probably readers can get into if they want to dive into it. um, The East India Company representatives figure out this way to stay in the good graces of Aurangzeb and ultimately they do not get uh, evicted from India. And in fact, in a subtle way, they end up getting more power. They get some kind of naval power, basically. To They, they get the gig of policing the sea channels, uh, protecting Aurangzeb from pirates. So they kind of flip it 
in in this. Um, and it's the first time that the East India Company gets some kind of legal authority. Um, it's over the water, it's not over the land, but it's the first time where they actually are playing, they have the force of law on their side in India. And so it's the beginning of a transition that will lead 60 years later to the, you know, kind of formalizing of the of the the first pass of the, of the official British Empire in India. And if they had been thrown out, um, I think there's a very convincing case that that the British Empire in India would not have happened because you wouldn't have had a single monopoly. You wouldn't have had the single, you know, kind of corporate control over the country that the East India had. You would have had a bunch of competitors and Dutch and Portuguese and all these, you know, a bunch of different English firms. And so it's one of those little hinge points in history where if it had gone a slightly different direction, the next two centuries would have played out in a completely different way. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's such a you know resonant story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story, clearly with some significant historical implications. Um, but is it fair to say that every story has been eclipsed then by the pirates that come a generation later? And and why do you think that is? I, it's a it's a good question. You know, it's funny the. The, the the way this the, the one of the seed ideas for me for this book um, that actually sat around in my head for uh, almost fifteen years before I started writing this book was uh, when, when my children were very young I went uh, we went to Disney World and we went on the the Pirates of Caribbean ride this is probably before those movies came out even and it, it was right after nine eleven. And we'd been living in New York during that period. And so I'm going on this ride and looking at all these pirates who were all supposed to be the golden age pirates that come after Avery, you know, the Blackbeard generation, all that. And I'm sitting on the ride and thinking, these pirates are terrorists. I mean, they were the terrorists of the period. You're sitting in your nice Caribbean town and then all of a sudden these the small band of people descend on your town and set fire to everything and kill people mercilessly and then they disappear. And you live in constant fear of these renegades who are going to come and, you know, murder all your relatives. And I thought, here we are 300 years later and now they're just a ride <laughs> that kids love. Like, is that, is there going to be the equivalent for Al-Qaeda in 300 years? Is it going to be a Disney ride for this? Is that how history kind of unwinds the horror of past atrocities in this way. And so I that's that stuck in my head for all these years. And in, in many ways, you know, there, there's some distinct parallels between Avery's story and and bin Laden. I mean, th- there was a kind of global manhunt for Avery and, you know, really in a way is the first global manhunt um, similar to the search for Osama bin Laden and similar sense of a small band of people lighting up the world with, you know, one crime. Um, but why the, the next generation? I I don't know. I, th- I think that there were more of them. I mean, Avery partially inspired them. They, they It was, you know, it was it was um, less lawful to be a pirate as a British citizen in, in 1720, for sure. But they had they had all heard stories about the, you know, there were plays written about Avery. There's, there were books, there's a book called, or the play called The Successful Pirate, right? There was like a, there, he was a role model. that uh, You could go and pull off one heist and have, you know, $10 million and retire for the rest of your life. That was, that, that was exciting to a certain generation. And so I think maybe because there were more of them, um, that they that generation ended up getting you know kind of more attention and Avery's story was a little bit lost 
Um, but it's it's strange. Hopefully, uh, I mean, I, you know, we, we were talking before about um, before we began about how we feel about Avery, like as a as a character. And on the one hand, I feel like his story needs to be told because it's a very interesting moment in history and helps us understand the kind of forces that are leading to the modern global system at that moment in time. Um, but it's hard to write a book with a character like that at the center of it and not somehow feel like he should be the hero, but he is so clearly not on so many levels. He's so clearly, a, a, you know, an awful person on on multiple levels, even though their economic system has this kind of progressive, almost utopian kind of quality to it. So uh, he's a very mixed bag of things, but I think it's important that we know more about him in that way. We don't have to be sympathetic towards him to to want to learn more about that life. Completely. Well, it, it's a fascinating story, Stephen, and thanks so much for talking with us about it today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Stephen Johnson, Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy, power, and history's first global manhunt, is out now, published by Riverhead. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll return on Friday, when John Barton will be discussing the history of the Bible. (laughs) 